Hello and welcome back to Naturally Adventurous. This is Charlie. Back at the end of season one, we chatted to Tiffany Kirsten, who was at that point midway through her big year. And as we close out season three, we've invited Tiffany back on the show to find out how the rest of her year went on and what she's been doing since then. So um, a very warm welcome back to Naturally Adventurous, Tiffany Kirsten. Thank you. I'm excited to be back. At the time we talked, you had several different goals. I think one of your goals was to was to pass 700 in your lower 48 big year. And then you also kind of had it in your mind that it might be possible to actually break the record for your big year. So could you let us know um, how you got on with that? So yeah, I had right around when we recorded the podcast in July of 2021, um, I was really looking at, I was doing really well so far and had a lot of time, that kind of downtime over the summer to plan and was mapping out the rest of the year and figured I could almost certainly get to 700, which was my original goal and uh, could possibly, possibly break the record, which was 724 at the time. Uh, I had a big spreadsheet and doing a big year, <laughs> a lot of logistics. And so it's, you know, sure. all the whole list of birds and then location A, location B, location C, all these different backup plans if look, the first location didn't work out. Um, and I had mapped out my way to 700 and kind of eliminated some birds, individual species that I could go for, and I knew I could get them, but nothing else was anywhere near them. So Smith's Longspur, for instance, was one of them. I knew I could go to Oklahoma in the middle of nowhere for them, but I also knew that would be a trip for just one bird. And so I was planning yeah. um, budget-friendly for 700. I would delete this right. one, delete that one, delete that one. And so I factored kind of all those back in. I was like, well, if I'm able to go for this one and this one and this one, you know, I know this handful of birds are guaranteed, and then if a handful of rarities show up and are cooperative enough for me to chase them, breaking the record is not super likely, but might be possible. So I think we spoke in about July. I think at that point you were on about 650 species. So you made it to 700. I made it to 700. What date was that that you made that uh, milestone? October 3rd. October 3rd, right. I got 700 on a boat out of Ventura, California, and blue-footed booby of all species, blue-footed booby was my 700. Oh. So that was very fun. <laughs> very nice. And at that point, had you already decided that you were going to go for the record? I was still trying to decide. Um, right around when I hit 700, <laughs> frankly, is right around the time I ran out of money. <laughs> um, right. And I think I talked about in the last podcast how I had recently bought a house and then, you know, just after COVID yeah. hit, I bought a house and then I lost my job. Uh, and so, you know, I was trying to not go in debt, but also not lose my house. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So even after I hit 700, I was still deciding for a bit whether or not to continue. So what happened after that then? Did you you just you still had birds that you wanted to go for and you were you had them kind of mapped out in case or what? Yes. So I had to, you know, in this decision making, I had to keep going until I decided to definitively stop rather than pause and maybe decide to keep going because otherwise I'd be losing time. And so I went and chased a handful more birds. And then I was guiding at the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival in uh, the second week in November. 
and uh, was put on a trip to the King Ranch because I needed Ferruginous Pygmy Owl. So for the whole year, uh, that was my plan, was to come back and and guide that trip to King Ranch, probably the most reliable spot in the U.S. to get that species. So that was my 705. And again, you're still deciding whether or not to continue. Um, That was on the Saturday of the festival. And Sunday morning, I led a beginner's bird walk uh, on South Padre (laughs) Island. (laughs) <laughs> and right. got back around noon and went to go work at the Swarovski booth for the afternoon. And I got into the Swarovski booth and had been there about 10 minutes. Um, I'm a field tech with Swarovski, so I just go show the product, basically. And uh, I was standing there, and I got a text message that a fork-tailed flycatcher was 9.9 miles away from where I was standing at San Benito Wetlands. <laughs> I guess it was fine for you just to uh, take off and, and go for that. Yeah, so I uh, I instantly... Or you, or you didn't even ask. <laughs> I, I didn't really even ask. Uh, Clay, Clay Taylor's right. my bat boss. I just looked at Clay, uh, you know, and relayed the message, and I, I instantly took off, raced over there in my car. Uh, it was a delayed eBird report from the morning, so there was a woman that had seen uh-huh. the bird around 8 a.m., and uh, I was getting the message around noon. It finally came out on eBird. And so I raced over there, the 9.9 miles, and I was the first one to refind it. It was literally exactly where she had described it, um, being at 8 a.m. Right. And then hundreds of birders got to come after me because it was the end of the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival, which has like uh, 600 sure. participants. Um, and so that was really cool. Quite a cool bird as well, a nice long tail. Yeah, it was a really cool bird. And um, I had, in that spreadsheet that I mentioned... I had also been tracking my cost per bird or cost per trip per bird. And uh, I estimate this bird cost me (laughs) $1.50. Yeah. (laughs) So I was like, well, you know, I'm just going (laughs) to, I'm going to take this as a sign. You know, this this rare bird showed up basically right in front of my nose, and I'm going to take it as a sign that I'm supposed to continue my big year. And so it was at that point that I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go for the record. I'm going to start flying uh, pretty aggressively all around the country, you know, for individual birds, and I'm going to go into credit card debt to do this thing. Really? Yeah, I was just about to ask you how you were going to pay for it all, but uh, yeah, that kind of <laughs> answers that. You were doing like a GoFundMe and you had some sponsorship, but I mean, I guess it's quite a, a costly thing, isn't it? Jetting all over the place for, for individual birds. Relatively. I mean, yes, I did spend a good chunk of change. I, I'm comfortable openly sharing um, the finances behind my big year. So I spent $22,007 um, throughout the course of my year and about 7000 of that was through the GoFundMe, the fundraiser that right. I had for uh-huh. the personal safety alarms. Yeah. And I was able to gift 267 personal safety alarms to women that I met along the trails um, on that project. But I did end up finishing the year with with about $8,000 in credit card debt. That's actually a good deal cheaper than I thought it was. I mean, I guess you were very kind of mindful of your budget throughout the year. It was a budget year. Yeah, you know, I crunched some of the numbers afterwards and... I ended up spending uh, 148 nights away from home, really? and it did me well to be living here in the Rio Grande Valley because there were lots of rarities that showed up that I could just run over and get somewhere and, and sleep in my own bed that night. Yeah. But I only paid for 18 nights in hotels, ro- hotel rooms. Really? Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. 
Were you hosted by any other birders when you were when you were traveling around? Because I mean, it's a good. You're probably pretty well connected with all your guiding. I was. There was. Um, there was kind of a turning point, I guess, in my big year where I was in. I was actually in Southeast Arizona. I was at the Tucson, or the yeah, the Southeast Arizona Birding Festival in Tucson, and there were. Uh, there was a family of rufous cap warblers that was seen about an hour and 15 minutes away in Ramanote Canyon, this really remote, super underbirded canyon. And I, at this point, I had, you know, I had fully decided that I was going to start my own company come January 1st or January 2nd, whenever I got home. And, um, and that was kind of my justification to spend the rest of the year running around the country. And, uh, you know, I didn't know if, if starting my own business was going to work and I didn't know if I was going to like it. And there were so many variables, but, um, I had plans to meet up with a local guide and, and I did have guides help me from time to time throughout my big year. Um, never had the funds to pay anyone. <laughs> um, but there were guides, friends of mine, acquaintances of mine, strangers even, uh, that I donated their time, and especially once I decided to become a bird guide myself, it was kind of a networking thing. So, yeah. okay, we could meet each other and send each other clients in the future and whatnot. So I had plans to meet up with a local guide um, and go for these these um, rufous cap warblers, and he canceled on me. Oh. And I was already there in Tucson working the festival, and I was like, okay, at this point I'm planning on flying all around the country for individual birds. I cannot leave Tucson without getting to these birds yeah. somehow. And, uh, so I was like, well, what do I do? I was like, well, okay, I can rent. So I what I need is four wheel drive and I need at least one more person to go with me just for <laughs> the safety concerns because of how remote it was. So I was like, well, I'll rent a four wheel drive vehicle. And so I re I checked around. There were no four wheel drive vehicles available for rent anywhere in the Tucson or Phoenix area. So that wasn't an option. And then at some point I just kind of panicked and I, and I posted on my Facebook and I was like, here's the situation. I'm in Tucson. I need to get to these birds. Like, can anyone help? And I had a bunch of friends in town, but they were all guiding for the festival already. So they were busy, um, leading trips for that. And, uh, this guy, Josh Koval, uh, was a Facebook friend of mine, but I never met him. Yeah. Been, everyone been on Josh. This podcast as well. I, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I had never met him in person, but he was a Facebook friend of mine and he's like, yes, I'm here for the festival. Um, you know, I have, I have a Subaru. I can pick you up at X time, whatever, super dark in front of the hotel the next morning. And I was like, oh, perfect. And so, you know, we met up first thing in the morning and, uh, in his Subaru, it Subaru kind of just barely made it. We were pushing it, taking a Subaru <laughs> back there for sure. It was really rough go, but we got back there and parked. And it was one of my favorite stories of my big year. Cause it's about a two mile hike in to get to where the birds are. Um, and it's a rough hike. It's basically like up the Creek bed and we got there and there was, there were no, no Rufus cap orb. There was no sign of them. Nothing. We, uh, we sat around for about 20 minutes and just waited Still didn't hear anything. And then we just started wandering back out. And uh, about an eighth of a mile back towards the car, an adult and a fledgling popped up right next to the side of the trail. <laughs> it's a beautiful little bird <laughs> as well. Count me, count me. Yeah, it's gorgeous, gorgeous little birds. And so I think that was three, uh, six, 663 for the year, if I'm not mistaken. Fantastic. Did you find a lot of people were following you? I, I remember all your, because you know, I've got you on Facebook, I remember all your Facebook stories coming up and you were kind of putting the number of the bird it was and you were doing all these little videos. You were quite active on social media during your year. 
I was, yeah. And I got even more of a following, I think. So when I when I posted, you know, and Josh reached out for that, that's kind of where I started realizing the power yeah. of just kind of connecting with people on social media. And so there's a Facebook page called World Girl Birders. Uh-huh. And I would post in there often, you know, all kinds of different corners of the country. Uh, that's where I met two sweet women that I met for Himalayan Snowcock and Kasha Crossville. And, you know, they, they, you know, I, I posted on there and I was like, I'm going to be in this general location, general, you know, I never gave my exact location sure. for safety concerns. But, um, you know, if, if any women birders want to connect while I'm there, reach out and then they'd reach out and we'd, we'd chat privately, you know, kind of about what the detailed logistics would be from there. And, uh, and it was a great way to connect with women birders all over the country. So many really fun stories. Um, and actually those two, those two women that I just mentioned are actually coming on my Panama trip this fall. So it's fun <laughs> to, to network and, and to, to run all over the country and just have, have all these stories of, you know, people that were strangers 24 hours earlier. And then, uh, you know, you just had to share these amazing birding experiences. And then, and then, you know, usually instantly it was time for me to move on. Um, in December, I met up with two women kind of in the same way in Massachusetts. I needed black headed gull. And, uh, they said, we, we're happy, you know, we'd love to meet up with you, help you find the bird, whatever. And so it had been going back and forth between a couple of different harbors. And so we did the divide and conquer method even before I met them. <laughs> uh, and it happened to be at the harbor that they were at. So I raced over to them and we got the bird. That was, that was my 723. Um, it was a gull in a parking lot. It was one species away from tying the record with a gull in a parking lot. <laughs> wow. But, um, yeah, we, we got there, um, you know, saw the bird and then I met them. We found a nearby coffee shop and got coffee for like 20 minutes and then I had to go. Uh, it was a whirlwind, but it was really, really awesome connecting with so many people. Was it in your mind during the year that, you know, you were starting your own company? straight afterwards that this was going to be quite a good way to set yourself up to you know to connect with a lot of people and to and to to tell your story that it might be a good way to sort of kickstart your new company in hindsight i do realize that and i think maybe i realized it a little bit um <laughs> in real time but not not to the extent uh that it turned out right. to be um you know my my big year gained a lot of i guess it was probably from the women's safety component but it, it gained a lot of attention from the media and I actually, last June, June of 2022, um, found myself on the cover of Texas Monthly Magazine, which calls <laughs> itself the National Magazine of Texas. Yeah, it's very Texan. I, I think I might have seen that. Were you wearing some some little kind of safari outfit or, or something like that? <laughs> I was, yes. Lots of people ask me questions about that. I'm like, you don't really, you don't really dress like that when you bird, do you? No, I didn't. They uh, they dressed me. They dressed me. Um, they brought in a photographer from LA. We had a seven hour photo shoot with live raptors. It was a wild, wild once in a lifetime experience. Very cool. Um, I, I just wanted to actually back up a little bit. You were you were talking about the Himalayan snowcock, which I guess is a, a sort of introduced species in the states. But um, you know, I guess many people would have uh, seen or heard of the the, the Big Year movie. Um, but I know that mm-hmm. that was one bird that somebody you can actually see from a helicopter right so in the movie it was portrayed as being seen from a helicopter yes i actually share this story in the presentations (laughs) i give about my big year and i have to break it to the audience that sorry no this is not the typical way you go see this bird (laughs) um i've heard of one person going to see it uh, by helicopter but typically it's a hike 
Right. Uh, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous hike yeah. in the Ruby Mountains in Nevada. Um, let's just continue on towards the, the end of your big year. So you said the record was 724 and mm-hmm. and the black-headed girl you saw was what number? 723. That was 723. So what, what, were your, what, what were your final couple of birds and how did they, uh, how did they happen? So then I went to Oklahoma for Smith's Long Spur, which was one of the ones that uh, I had just dismissed when I was planning to go for 700. Yeah. And um, I had again posted on social media and this woman said, you're welcome to stay with me and my boyfriend. You nice. know, we'll pick you up from the Tulsa airport. You can stay with us. We'll go to the bird. We'll be there at sunrise the next day. And then I didn't have a plan after that. There were no rarities being seen that I needed to chase. I didn't what date have... was this now? Uh, this was December 18th. Right. Okay. Less than two weeks to go. Yep. <laughs> so we were standing in the field um, in Oklahoma, between halfway between Stillwater and Tulsa, and uh, we, you know we heard the the birds are there; they were guaranteed to be there. Yeah. So we heard them, and then we saw them, and then I was trying to digiscope them because I I used to carry a camera, but I actually sold it about five years ago. And so when I decided to do a big year, I was digiscoping and digibinning everything. I was taking cell phone photos <laughs> through my binoculars and my spotting scope um, to try to, I, I didn't document everything by any means, but especially rare birds, I tried to document. And if we're just sitting there and had, had time, you know, especially near the end of the year, with so many people following my story and whatever, it was just fun to be able to give people updates with actual visuals of the bird. Yeah. So I was trying to digiscope them and a text message came through and I looked at these previous strangers that I was standing in the field with. And I was like, we have to go. And they had already previewed the night before we talked and they said they were happy to bring me to either Tulsa or Stillwater airports, wherever it made most sense for me to go next uh-huh. and, or, or stay another night at their place, you know, if I didn't have anything to chase yet. And, um, so I looked at them and I said, we have to go. And they were like, where? And I was like, I don't know. Um, and it was 20 degrees in this field. It was very, very cold for a Texan. And my fingers were so cold, I couldn't even, like, I basically couldn't use my phone. (laughs) So we got back into their car, and I warmed up my hands enough to book flights, and I booked a flight back to McAllen, because on the Christmas bird count at Santa Ana National Wildlife Refuge, the bat falcon that had been briefly seen by one person maybe a week and a half earlier was refound from the, the hawk tower at Santa Ana. And so, um, as soon as I booked my ticket, they brought me back to Tulsa. I flew Tulsa to Dallas, Dallas to McAllen. I got a touchdown about well, three o'clock in, um, McAllen and, uh, literally ran with my luggage to my car and, um, drove the 20 minutes. I was wearing a turtleneck and, um, leggings under my jeans <laughs> and wool socks and like non breathable waterproof hiking boots. <laughs> And I landed, it was 85 degrees, um, and raced there. And I had, like, I had a t-shirt in my, in my luggage. I had all, I had all weather clothes in my luggage. I checked a bag only a couple times during my big year. You don't have time for that. Sure. But you also don't know when you might miss a bird by like 30 seconds. Yeah. And so I got there to Santa Ana. I could have like quickly changed my shirt, but I didn't, didn't want to risk it. So I, um, yeah, I just got out of the car and started running with my binoculars and my keys <laughs> and my phone. Um, someone I knew already had a spotting scope on the bird, so I left my scope behind just so I could run that much faster. And uh, ran the half mile. Thank you, Orange Theory Fitness. Uh, ran the half mile, took the stairs literally two at a time, and got to the top of the observation tower and stuck my eyeball in a scope and, and saw the bat falcon through the scope. And that was that was the breaking then of the lower 48 big year record. That was 725. Wow. 
Fantastic. It it stuck around. <laughs> that must have been quite a tense moment to getting towards that. Yeah. Skirt. So it's funny. I don't I don't think I've shared the story actually with anyone yet. I do a lot of presentations, speaking speaking presentations all over the country. It's an hour long presentation. There's only time for so much. Sure. But um, my flight back from from Dallas to McAllen got upgraded upgraded to first class, which happened to me a lot um, near the end of my big year. Um, just with the, the point system that right. American Airlines has. And right. so I was sitting first class and I actually was sitting like right across from uh, one of the jump seats. So one of the airline pilots, as we started landing, you know, was sitting uh, right across from me and facing me. It's kind of awkward. <laughs> um, I, I had a glass of red wine because why not? If free alcohol, sure. chill out a little bit here. And, uh, and <laughs> And I was looking at my phone like every two minutes, you know, I didn't have, it was on a plane, so I couldn't check for any updates. Um, but I was just super anxious and super anxious. At one point I started crying oh, no. and it's like <laughs> this, this attendant had to have thought that I had like a dying relative, uh, you know, that I was trying to see before it was too late or something like that. Like looking back, I'm like, oh man, I was just trying to see a bird and it was really stressful. Um, yeah, the bird was seen around 9am right. and, uh, I finally got to it like 3.30, but it was fun because all, a bunch of my birding friends from all around Texas were there you know, they'd had all day to travel down and come see the birds. So it was really fun to celebrate breaking the record with so many other people around. Yeah. And Laura Keene was there too. Oh, Laura nice. Keene did a big year in 2016. Yeah. Um, and so we celebrated and, and got dinner afterwards. So that was very, very fun. So that was it. You'd done it. I'd done it. Yeah. And for it to happen at the, at the place I used to, I used to work at Santa Ana, yeah. my very first job in, um, the, the Rio Grande Valley here was at Santa Ana Refuge. And uh, at the time, I was still on the Friends Board. At the time that I broke a record, I was still on the Friends Board for Santa Ana. And we had actually gone to Washington, D.C. in 2017 or 2018 to talk to Congress about the negative environmental effects of border walls in the Rio Grande Valley because uh, Santa Ana was supposed to be the, the ground zero for the first border walls for the Trump administration. Yeah. And if they put border walls in there, we didn't know if uh, they would close the refuge to the public. That was definitely a possibility. Right. So it was super, super special to me uh, to break the break the record at probably like the most special place on this planet, honestly, to me. And, uh, you know, I broke the record and talked with some people. And then I had to just walk down a trail and, you know, kind of have a, have a moment alone. It was a really emotional, <laughs> emotional time. That's an amazing story. And, and just so, yeah, it's just amazing that you kind of ended up Back where you, back where you started, I guess, to get your final bird. Really, really cool. Well, it wasn't my final bird. Oh, it was a record-breaking bird. Okay. <laughs> I did get one more. Right. Um, I went to New Jersey uh, for Northern Lapwing uh-huh. on December twenty-third, um, and uh, my friend Debbie picked me up from the Philadelphia airport, took me to the bird. Thankfully, because I probably would have had to wait till the next day. Um, I would have probably run out of. The daylight actually if i even had to just wait for a rental car so sometimes some places people came in helping me with an assist like that which is like you know i could have rented a car but then i would have had to wait the next day so she saved me like a whole bunch of time and money and and everything and uh so that was my my 726 and i uh, got to meet uh 
Yeah, all kinds of fun stories. I got to meet this mother and daughter birding duo. The daughter was like 12 or 13, and they had been following me. And so oh, I just nice. broke in the record a few days earlier. They were the first people to treat me kind of like a like a birding celebrity. Wow. Um, so that was very fun. And so until that point, I had actually not ever missed a bird by plane. <laughs> I was really strategic and planning. Right. And so, uh, sometimes, and, and with the airlines now and all the flexibility, sometimes I would book plane tickets for two or three days out to three different places on the same day. Right. And then I would watch what the birds were doing and go to the one that was being the most reliable and cancel the other two tickets and then use those credits and kind of leapfrog. And if they were still being seen, go to them right. after seeing the first bird. And so that helped me a lot, like in so many ways, COVID. I, there's no way I would have been able to do this big year uh, without COVID because it would have saved, it, I saved so much money, I think, um, with the new airline policy uh, and right. being able to strategize sure. that way. Uh-huh. And where others, otherwise it would have been all that lost money on plane tickets, you know, to birds that were no longer there. That's interesting that and, that worked uh, in your favor in the end, because I, I know one of the things you mentioned the last time you were on was that a lot of things have got more expensive, like, like hire cars and, and flights and stuff. But um, I guess that balanced it out a little. Yeah, up and down. And well, now we all know what happened in the last couple of years. So thankfully, it wasn't last year or this year that I was doing a big year. But um, because everything has just gone up so much now. But uh, but yeah, so then I tried for Common Crane in Northern California. Oh, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, I spent by myself driving around farm fields. That was not fun. And then um, December 29th, I was supposed to be on a pelagic trip out of Hatteras, North Carolina. And then that trip got weathered out to the 30th and then got weathered out again. No. Um, and we ended up going on the, the 31st. Right. We did go on the 31st, but there was no great skiva. And I was cold and tired and so <laughs> unhappy. And halfway through the trip, if we just turned around and given up, even with how, all the time and effort and money I spent to get there, I would have I wouldn't have cared. <laughs> I was so ready to be done. Oh, shame. So how did you feel like right on that last, were you just kind of relieved that it was over or? I was very relieved that it was over. I kind of worried. So I was on the eBird, the hourly eBird alerts for the whole country since like April, I think. Sometime in April, I started that. And so I literally was thinking, oh, you know, am I, am I going to go through these kind of withdrawals of like, you know, needing the adrenaline rush that I was getting basically every hour of like, is there a new bird and just obsessively checking that. But I was so tired by the end of the year that, that I was, yeah, just thankful to be done. You know, I think a lot of people see chasing birds by plane all over the U.S. as like as some sexy thing, which don't get me. I, I understand like how fortunate and uh, and privileged I am to have had have this opportunity. But it's exhausting. Yeah. Um, you know, you spend all of your time in airports, on airplanes, uh, drive. You know, waiting for rental cars, driving rental cars, and I estimate the last two months of the year. Each bird, like the average time I spent at like the bird that I went to go see, I maybe spent like 15 minutes at it and then had to turn around and, you know, go on to the next thing. And after you were done, was it a bit of an adjustment to kind of stop looking at your phone? And I guess you turned the alerts off and just tried to kind of wind down a bit. I did turn the alerts off. (laughs) Um, I flew back January 1st from North Carolina and, uh, I took January 2nd off and then I started bird guiding January 3rd and um, 
you know, I was $8,000 in credit card debt and had a mortgage to pay and, you know, obviously needed to keep up with my current expenses and needed to, uh, be able to save up money to get me through the summer into the fall. Um, because nobody comes to Texas in the summer. So I hustled. So there was no pause. My pause came about mid May when I finished guiding for the season and could breathe a little bit again. (laughs) Wow. And did it pay off a little bit? You know, your your kind of new newfound fame and uh, you know all your networking throughout the year. Did that help you to find people to guide in the beginning of the season? It did, yeah. I mean, there's there's no shortage of visiting birders as it is down here, but definitely, I think the publicity from my big year helped, and and even more so uh, this last season that I just finished. It was kind of even more people had found me uh, in the year after my big year, definitely. And you mentioned something about women's tours as well. Uh, Tell me about that. So my company is Nature Ninja Birding Tours, and I mostly guide here actually locally, just in the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas, and specialize in very small group women's tours and women's retreats um, at a fancy upscale B&B in McAllen. It's 10 minutes from the airport, so we do a shortish time. It's, It's five days, four nights. Um, all inclusive and, uh, up to six women, a very small group of up to six women at a time. And we just have a great time, you know, birding at a, at a good pace. We don't kill ourselves trying to see everything. Um, but we see lots and lots of good birds and it's been really fun to just the, the dynamic. No offense. <laughs> uh, the dynamic when, uh, when there's no men around is just different. Um, and it's really, you know, it kind of eliminates, some of the kind of competitive nature maybe of, you know, someone wanting to be the first person in the group to identify a bird or, you know, some women have, you know, some people, some men step like step in front of them, you know, while they're trying to, to look or, or photograph something. It's kind of interesting you, you're saying that men are often a lot more competitive when they're birding, but I mean, you've reached the sort of pinnacle of the sort of competition as a woman. <laughs> <laughs> So I hope to be setting the example, both as a, as a woman bird guide and a woman big ear birder. You know, it's it's like 60% probably women birders at kind of the intro and like intermediate, just kind of average birder, if you will, kind of demographic. But when you get into more specialty things like, you know, probably like pelagic tours, I don't know exactly what the demographic is on like more specialty things like pelagic tours or, you know, I'd be interested to see in what um, the demographic is for like some of the, some of the more, the rougher tours, like New St. Paul, Alaska, St. Paul and Alaska tours and things like that. But definitely big year birders, um, very, very few women and less than 10% of bird guides in the U.S. are women. And so there is some kind of glass ceiling happening. I think some of that um, from all the conversations that I've had during my big year, I think some of that is, is a safety concern, but there's other things happening too. Yeah, it's interesting. I kind of get the feeling that it's changed a little bit. I was looking through some some rankings, I think world rankings of you know uh, life world listers, and I was um, I noticed that there was more women coming up into those rankings. So I think there are probably getting more. You obviously guide women and men, but you think men are just more competitive by nature, or? I think that women often get pushed out of the birding scene a little bit. I've had situations happen because birding at this higher caliber level is so male dominated right now. It's hard for a woman to kind of find her place. I, you know, back, I spent about three years living in Cape May, New Jersey before I moved to Texas. And, um, 
some friends of mine had, um, you know, planned this uh, birding chase. I don't even remember where they were going. Ohio, I think. There was some shorebird, a stint or something like that. Um, and I really wanted to go, you know, and I was friends with a bunch of the people. But one of the people going was my ex-boyfriend. And so, I, you know, it was like, well, kind of either me or him kind of a thing. And so I was like, oh, well, you know, it's going to be a boy's trip and we're right. going to leave the one woman behind. Uh, and so things like that happen on, you know, not on just on the scale of chasing one bird, but on opportunities to go on, on full out trips and, you know, opportunities to le- learn and grow. It's just that, you know, breaking into a space that's, that's male dominated, um, is, it takes kind of a special kind of tenacity, I yeah. think. There's another thing that you mentioned. So you, your big year had the element of you handing out these safety alarms and you know raising the topic of women's safety while birding. You were very open that you were a you know survivor of a, a sexual assault, and and that was to do with your archery. And, and you actually mentioned the last time you came on that one of your goals was to get back into archery, was to shoot again. And um, so did you do that? Yes, I just started shooting again a few months ago um, with a new coach. My coach uh, was actually in the Olympics in 2004, my new coach. And uh, and so it's been great training under him and training under a a couple other folks that have been shooting for years too. And I've been shooting tournaments. I've done maybe four or five so far and uh, including (laughs) winning a buckle. Uh, a belt buckle is that what in, you win? A, a very large tournament in central texas <laughs> yes <Nice>. yes <laughs> but was that important for you to get back in and you know not feel beaten by somebody like that it it was yeah. it was important to my healing you know i've done a lot of self-work a lot of self-help books i actually um pretty much for the first time in my life had the financial resources mm-hmm. to start therapy last fall so i've been in therapy for the better part of a year now and that's been great kind of like a final a final stage in in my healing lots to unpack there but um yeah archery did feel like kind of almost the final i don't almost don't want to say the final step in my healing because yeah. you never you're never the same after something like that happens um and there's a there's a there's a stage of like mourning there too of like you're never going to be that exact same person you were before uh, something that traumatic happens to you, but, but it did feel like, you know, right. kind of the final, the final layer, um, of returning to everything that I wanted to return to before. So that's been really awesome, really empowering. Um, and I found a really, really great kind of new, new archery community here. That's been super supportive. You managed to balance everything. I mean, you do a lot of different stuff and you've done a lot of different stuff. You know, you did your dancing and your training for the upper body strength competition that you were training for big time and uh, and you're doing your archery and then you're doing this competitive birding. Do you find you're able to sort of balance all your interests and keep kind of, I mean, there's certain things I like to do in, you know, I, I love studying languages and I like doing martial arts and it, yeah, but it's sometimes hard to fit everything in. You know, you sometimes go so busy with with one thing you know with birding or working or or whatever that you can't fit the other things in do you manage to balance everything that you want to do (laughs) i try no the world the world's worst crime (laughs) is that there's only 24 hours in the day it's awful um today i went to the gym i took a weightlifting class and then i went and shot archery and it was like oh yeah kind of overdid it at the gym because archery is pretty um Pretty demanding too on the body, oh. <laughs> and I started country dancing uh, since we last talked. Yeah. That's that's new in the last year, so that's become a big passion of mine. 
Um, all yeah, just so many, so many hobbies. And right. um, I'm a certified yoga teacher now, which happened last year. And so I'm going to start teaching uh, birding and yoga programs. But yoga is a big part of my life too. So fitting in yoga classes and yeah, it's yeah. there's a lot going on. There's always a lot going on. But um, as for the American Ninja Warrior stuff, I've kind of put that on the well can't say on the back burner right. that's no longer going to be a part of my life <laughs> um it's just it's great i wish i could get back to it um but i have some yeah. shoulder overuse injuries from when i was training back in 2020 2019 and 2020 and um I'm, well frankly i'm self-employed now so uh if i can't walk which uh, I sprained my ankle once when I was training before. If I can't, if I can't be fully functional, sure. then I can't make a living. So, um, but but yeah, just do definitely still love uh, fitness and and for birding. Do you do you get out birding for fun as well? It's kind of a weird thing, you know, because you, you you do it now for a living and you, you're guiding. Do you actually sort of bird recreationally and go out and just do it for yourself? So thank you for bringing this up because this is something that recently I have realized we need to destigmatize um, bird guides who don't eat, sleep, live yeah. birds every single moment of their life. <sighs> Where do I start? So last May, um, May of 2022, when I was, you know, I guided six or seven days a week for like yeah. four or five months to just trying to recoup finances and make sure that I would be in an okay place until fall. I basically hated birds. I did not want to look at another bird. I went to go work. Um, after I finished my season here, I went to go work for Swarovski for about a week at the biggest week in American birding in Ohio. And, uh, you know, we, we split um, the people we have working there. We split between being in the field on the boardwalk and spending time in the tent at the expo. And I was like, can, can I right. please just sit at this table and talk to people about optics? I didn't even want to go look at birds. I was like, turn the birds off. I don't want to look at birds anymore. So um, I did go through a period of time where I was like, man, am I, you know, do I like birds enough to be a full-time bird guide? Uh, but then I had the summer to recalibrate, and I loved birds again in the fall, uh, and I, I paced myself this season. But really? it's not really a hobby of mine, frankly. Um, and uh, it's taken me a while to get to the point of recognizing that that's okay. Okay, that's, that's very interesting. I mean, for me... I, I see birding on my own and, and guiding other people as very, very, very different. I mean, sometimes when I finish, you know, a long tour, the, the only thing that I want to do is just go birding on my own, just for myself. So I do, I do see it as as something very, um, very different. And I'm, I'm certainly, I, I'm, ca I'm kind of a bit, yeah, obsessed. But it's one, it's one of the things. I, I rarely feel like I don't want to go birding. Yeah, put it that way. Yeah, well, and I, I might feel different. You know, other parts of the country, you know, I definitely enjoy going birding. I see green jays too many days of the year. <laughs> so part of it is that, you know, I mostly do local day guiding, private day guiding, and then small group tours here in South Texas. And then I am also um, leading some tours, some women's tours and some co-ed tours, um, all genders tours, nice. to um, Panama uh, this coming fall, fall 2023 and fall 2024 as well. And I am going, I have had an awesome opportunity to co-lead a wings trip to Alaska. So we'll, we'll be going to Gamble and St. Paul um, this September. Looking to the future, is, is that something you'd like to, to do professionally? To sort of expand your horizons a little bit and get out you know, beyond the lower 48? Yeah, definitely. I'm interested in more international travel. Um, I've actually only 
flown outside of the U.S. <laughs> myself three times. Wow. Um, so I'm still kind of working on my my own comfort level with traveling um, on top of, you know, also being responsible for a group. So uh, Panama's kind of baby steps right. in that. I partner with Canopy yeah. Family, and so they help us out a lot um, once we get there. But definitely uh, working on just growing my yeah. own international experience um, first and then, and then continuing to expand more tours. And I definitely, definitely want to go birding in my spare yeah. time. Definitely tropical birding, um, is a hobby of mine. Especially when you know like one area or, you know, you obviously know your area incredibly well and you know the U.S. incredibly well, but to go somewhere else, to go out of your comfort zone and, and delve in and just be completely overwhelmed by birds that you don't know is, is quite a, it's quite a different thing, isn't it? It's really fun to go somewhere and not really know. Um, so my first trip to, my first international trip was to Costa Rica, um, in 2012. And I went and I basically had not studied, I'd, I'd done a little studying of the field guides, but I hadn't studied any calls before I went. And it was just the wildest thing to step outside the first morning and not have yeah. any idea what any of the sounds are. And I found that yeah. I kind of missed that in the U.S. You know, once we learn calls and songs, our brain goes to identifying and it's like, identify this, identify that. And it's no longer kind of that, that Zen kind of meditative moment where you can just be, you know, and experience it. You're just trying to analyze it. And at least for me, I can't turn that off. Once I learn what's what, I can't stop thinking about it. There's quite a magic to that first stage of birding where everything is new and everything is wonderful. And, you know, even though you're, you're obviously still you know, as an experienced birder in a particular place, you obviously love the stuff, but you, you you feel like you've like lost that magic a little bit of that sense of wonder um, that you get that you feel at the beginning. A little bit, yeah, yeah. The the figuring this out and figuring that out, it's, it's replaced with a different kind of um, confidence of like, well, you know, that's that and that's that. And the winter time here, I guide. You know, I honestly live a lot of the same days on repeat, going to the same places with different clients the following day. Um, and it's like it's a it's like a museum tour. The birds are so situated in the winter months. It's like you know the clay colored thrushes here on the right and the curbill thrashers up here on the left and. You know, then then mid March or so, stuff starts nesting, and it's like, oh yeah. wait, you know, who moved that one? <laughs> that wasn't where I left it. So, I often wonder how somebody guiding in the same place again and again stays kind of motivated and keeps their um, enthusiasm, I guess, um, going for their clients. So I love birds, but I think I love connecting people with birds even more. And my basically my whole career was in environmental education before I started managing um, the McAllen Nature Center. And so the environmental ed component, you know, I don't have a I have a degree in wildlife ecology, but I don't have like a very, very strictly scientific birding background. And um, today, you know, today I was guiding someone. We were at the National Butterfly Center and in a, a long billed thrasher. Uh, came out and was bathing at the feeding station and uh, I was like oh it's a baby <laughs> you know it's like well clearly it's not a baby and uh, you know my client knew it wasn't a baby and then you know I was like this is this is this year's young it's a fledgling but it's like yeah, yeah I mean I love I love the interp the connecting the excitement showing people life birds for the first time you know green jays and kiskadees those things that are so common to us but they're so exotic for all the visiting birders so I love that. And then I've grown to love my small, my small group tours even more because you really connect with and get to know the people. A lot of day guiding, it's like, I, you know, I 
Yeah. We spent eight hours together, and we were looking at things that weren't each other. We were looking at the birds, so I'm not going to even remember you, recognize you maybe even in the future. But what I do love uh, is being able to sleep in my own bed every night. So I, I travel in the off-season, you know. I, I'm looking at doing filling in some trips um, in in the off-season here, so I'll have... Um, I'll have Alaska in September and then Panama in October. And then, you know, come November, it'll be uh, guiding season back here again in Texas. Any other goals for the future? So I'm planning to sit down this summer and try to start writing a book. <laughs> um, that's one thing. Uh, the speaking thing has taken off a lot more than I ever anticipated it to have taken. So I actually just got home a few days ago from a 31-day wow. speaking tour from Indiana all the way up to Maine. And so I'm looking at doing something similar mm -hmm. again, possibly next May. Get on the road and get traveling a little bit. Yeah, I'm heading to Colorado in a few days, actually. I've got a presentation in Grand Junction and then another one in Denver. And right. then, I'll be, then I'll be pretty much done. You mentioned that somebody had come up to you and, and kind of complained that uh, you hadn't come back on to tell the rest of your story for your year. Yeah, I had kind of forgotten that we had it, that we had recorded it mid-year. Yeah, someone reached out to me and they were just like, hey, I, re I listened to your podcast, but then what happened next? <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, we should probably finish that. <laughs> it's been awesome to have you on. We always end with a natural sound. Any requests? Maybe one of the final birds of your trip? Bad falcon. Bad falcon, yeah. Okay, Tiffany, thanks again so much for coming on. It's been really interesting to hear the rest of your story and, uh, and hear what you've been up to since then. We're going to sign out with the, the Bat Falcon, which was the one that broke the record. Is that right? Correct. Yep. 725. Awesome. Take care. Um, keep in touch. Yeah, if you ever feel like coming to Thailand, I'd be very happy to take you out birding here. That would be amazing. <laughs> cool. But uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to uh, Naturally Adventurous.